I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. Aloha Bobby and Rose, Prime Cut, Citizens Band. You'll be forgiven if you don't recognize the names of these movies from the 1970s, which were often fillers at big movie houses and pure popcorn entertainment at the drive-in theaters. Turns out many of the films, by accident or intention, ended up being much more than the sum of their parts. Now, like so much of the pop culture of that time, these 70s films are finding new audiences today, and some dare call these B-films art. My guests are film experts and 1970s film buffs. Charles Taylor explores the films of the 1970s in his new book, Opening Wednesday at a Theater or a Drive-In Near You, The Shadow Cinema of the American 70s. Taylor is a member of the National Society of Film Critics and has written extensively on movies, books, popular culture, and politics for The New York Times, The New Yorker, Salon, and many others. Welcome to Under the Radar, Charles. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. Also joining me is Thomas Doherty, professor of American Studies at Brandeis University. Professor Doherty is a cultural historian with a special interest in Hollywood cinema, and an associate editor for the film magazine Sinest. Good to be here. (laughs) His most recent book is Hollywood and Hitler, 1933 to 1939. Thanks for joining me, Thomas. Let me start with you, Charles. I want you to define shadow cinema, or at least what you mean by the phrase as it relates to these 1970s films. What I meant by that phrase was that these were films that were sort of routinely dealt with, that didn't get a lot of attention at the time, because it was such an extraordinary decade, and with important, if not great, movies coming out week after week, that by comparison, the things I write about in the book may have seemed a little bit ordinary heist movies, car chase movies, crime thrillers. And they really weren't given a lot of space, critical space, as opposed to the big films of the decade. And now they seem to be not only good movies, but quite adult, anything but ordinary. I think in their time and also compared to what mainstream American commercial cinema has become, which is largely adolescent. Now, Thomas Doherty, you have a theory about why that's so. Uh, The timing, you call it the second golden age of Hollywood. Uh, Yeah, I think looking back on these films, and some of us when we were seeing them knew our minds were being blown, and we knew that something special was happening. But in retrospect, and that's how you perceive most golden ages, these films have really had a uh, reputation. And I think one of the things going on is... We had the end of the Hollywood production code in the late 1960s. So filmmakers could do things that they could never do before. And the first time they do that, it has more of an impact than the second time. And some of the examples might be sort of trivial, like in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the fight scene when Butch Cassidy kicks the guy in the groin. That had never happened before in a Hollywood film. And I remember seeing that in a theater. And the place is up for grabs squealing. Yeah. And many of the films of the 70s have similar moments, uh, and it can be individual moments or like a narrative structure where the heroes might die at the end, or it just might be unresolved where you walk out and go, what the heck just happened? But you're okay with it. Yeah, that's very true. It's funny. The I just saw or re-saw Hal Ashby's film, The Landlord, from 1970. Yeah. And um, it was something that I had taught a few years ago in a class I was doing with another critic on race and culture. And 
the students who were smart students had no idea how to deal with the open-endedness of the mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. It didn't explain things for them. It didn't lay it out. And they were smart when they were talking about it, but they were kept saying, well, what am I supposed to think? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's not telling you what you're supposed to think. So, And I think the other dynamic there is you had a generation of baby boomers in the millions who were willing to support these films. Yeah. So you had a dialogue between the filmmaker and the audience that the filmmaker knew he could test the audience or throw something at the audience that they wouldn't necessarily be secure with. And the audience, by and large, gave that support. So I think it was sort of the end of the production code. And then that particular dialogue between a generation of moviegoers who may be on like today, who are willing to entertain something out of the ordinary on screen. So let me play a trailer from one of the films that you spend a fair amount of time detailing in the book, Charles Taylor. This is called Prime Cut. You tell Marianne that I'm here. And not to get any fancy ideas about turning me or any of my boys into hamburger. You got it. Lee Martin, Gene Hackman. Together their murder in Prime Cut. Now, on its face, that could sound like a trailer of today, but the way that you dissect this film and let us know all of the contextual elements that were happening and place it into the 1970s really brings it alive. And I want all my listeners to understand that each of these essays is really quite something. You really kind of blew me away, Charles Taylor. Thank you. Um, I was left thinking, hmm, hmm. Oh, so anyway, tell us about Prime Cut. (laughs) Prime Cut is a a very sleazy crime movie about a corrupt meat magnet uh, in the Midwest. It's played by Gene Hackman, and his name is Marianne. And his meat business is really a cover for his real business, which is drugs and prostitution. Uh, He owes money to the Chicago mob. Somebody comes to collect it, and the guy is killed, thrown into his meat processing plant, and sent back to the mob as a package of hot dogs. And the mob sends out Lee Marvin to collect the money. And um, Marvin, in the process, rescues a young woman who uh, has fallen into his prostitution business. And she's played by Sissy Spacek in her first speaking role on screen. And the movie is sort of a fish-out-of-water story with this representative from the mob in the big city going to the Midwest. And it's set in the context of the silent majority, Nixon's silent majority, or what uh, Sarah Palin then called the real America meaning not those of us in the big cities or those of us in the coasts. The irony is that Marvin finds himself in much more danger in the Midwest than he is in the big city, which is where the people living in the middle part of the country think is so dangerous. And the director of the film, Michael Ritchie, sort of uses this whole milieu as a kind of satire on the savageness that laid beneath the bucolic... American scene at the time, what with the support for Vietnam and the support for Nixon's law and order regime. So you also, as you articulated about uh, Prime Cut and a number of other films, and we're going to play a couple of their excerpts in a second, is the realness. And the two of you have alluded to that, the sort of 
what you don't see now in a film that is just how we live our lives and why that made such a difference. So talk about that a little bit before I have Thomas weigh in as well about what's so shocking now when you look at these films and have these people be very real in their setting. In that case, that was the Midwest, but in other places, in other films, we're in uh, different settings. Well, the attitudes of the films, for one thing, they're not cynical, and I tried to avoid those because I, I don't like cynicism, but they're pessimistic, and they may feel defeated. But the atmospheres, things aren't prettied up. Several of these films take place in small towns, and you see diners, cafes, gas stations, places that have been banged up. Something that American Studies Professor Carol Ann Marling called, they bear the hard marks of use. So that's part of it. And a bigger part is, as Tom said about the movies of that era, a refusal to give an unearned happy ending. So, Thomas, do you talk about the realness, as uh, Charles Taylor has outlined in his book about these films? Uh, yeah, that, that you look at these films, you know, after a space of 40 years, they all kind of become unintentional documentaries of their era. And uh, I looked at a film a couple nights ago that I hadn't seen that Charlie writes about quite uh, eloquently, uh, Tulane Blacktop, a film by Monty Hellman starring the folk singer James Taylor and the ex-Beach ex boy Dennis Wilson. And that film goes from west to east, which is not the normal trajectory in America. And every one of those towns, I, I love that phrase about the, they bear use, is you know so evocative of that historical moment in 1970, shot on location. And, and you see things you don't see anymore, like those old Coca-Cola machines and the diners. And the other thing about the film, besides having that verisimilitude, just that sense of realness in the dialogue that it's a, about a couple guys who are racing across the country, is the dialogue about the automobiles, which is over my head. I mean, it's really specific <laughs> specific dialogue about the, uh, the torque and whatever that is in the cars. But the thing that I find so interesting about that movie, and I'm really so glad I caught up with it, is it's allegedly about this race. But as the movie goes on, we end up not caring about who's going to win the race. It just sort of is this you know shaggy dog story of these various little encounters at diners and gas stations. And uh, like the characters in the film, we, the audience, which I think today would really, like in Baby Driver, uh, you know, you really want to know who's going to win the race or who, right. who gets the heist correctly. We don't care about that. We kind of care about these human vignettes. And uh, I think that's sort of what's so interesting about those movies is they're willing to just say, ah, the plot, who cares? Yeah, one of the perverse things about Tulane Blacktop is that Monty Hellman was contracted to bring in a two-hour movie. His rough cut was three and a half hours, which is usually the case that rough cuts are much longer. And he cut out all the racing scenes. Mm, because that, was, that, that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the, the issue. issue. That's right. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. Joining me are film critic Charles Taylor and Brandeis University professor Thomas Doherty. We're talking about Taylor's book exploring what he calls the shadow cinema of the 1970s. Now, there is a strong theme of violence um, in all these books. I should mention for my listeners, I've never seen seen any of these films, not a one. So I'm completely drawn in to them by your description alone. So that's the power of good writing. And again, Charles's book is opening Wednesday at a theater or a drive-in near you, the shadow cinema of the American 70s. Here's one that definitely, there's a lot of conversation about the violence in it. You spent a lot of time explaining to me that this was not the point at all. It's called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Here's a, a cut from that film. This is Alfredo Garcia, 
He's about to become a very important man. We are looking for an old buddy of ours, a compadre named Alfredo Garcia. A private army is scouring three countries to find Alfredo Garcia. Well, don't worry if he's alive, I'll find him. Alive isn't our problem. Someone has offered a million dollars for his head. It's so gross the way you describe it, I have to tell you. I get what you said about it, but woof. It's uh, intense. Yeah, this was a film by <laughs> Sam Peckinpah, who um, had had a lot of history with studios taking back his films, re-editing them. Before he made this, he had come off the worst experience of his life making Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid at MGM. And Alfredo Garcia was the only film, he said, that was the way he wanted it start to finish. And it is grimy. It's dirty. It means to get every bit of exhaustion and dirt and sweat onto the screen and it's not pretty but it's beautiful and the beauty of it is in this story of this loser this american expatriate played by warren oates living in mexico who takes this assignment to get the head of a man who has impregnated this padrone's daughter and he has a girlfriend and he wants a better life for both of them and it's just you know that it's out of reach before they've begun. And the violence is in the film. It's part of what Peckinpah is doing, which is this, as I see it, an examination of masculinity and an examination of the limits of machismo, which is a limit to everything. It's a limit to the way you see the world. It's a limit to the way you interact. It's a limit to how close he can get to the woman he loves. And yet the tragedy is he's kept being put in these positions where Violence is the only response he has to survive. And it's quite a tormented film. And it was maybe, among everything I write about, the most reviled film upon release but of now, anything I wrote in the book. It, well, now it's, it, come, it's coming back. It's getting there. <laughs> yeah. It's getting there because there are critics and you know uh, who appreciate Peck and Paul and are looking back at his career, but at the time it was considered something close to the lowest of the low. Now, in that scenario, in that movie, I thought what you made clear was that for some people they just saw it, in fact, they called him Bloody Sam or something. They, which they, is a name he hated. Right, yeah. so that it was all gratuitous, which is what we can certainly apply to some films that we all could name here now. But Thomas, in this case, he knew what he was doing, even if people didn't appreciate in the moment what was happening with his use of violence. Yeah, well, I think most people had your reaction, which is like if you hear the Sam Peckinpah film called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, it's not going to be terms of endearment. You you have a warm human drama. Uh, And I think even for Peckinpah fans who love The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, which came out a little before, this was maybe a bridge too far that it was... Uh, it seemed just too over-the-top violence and that he was falling in love with his slow-mo violence uh, sequence. I don't admire the film as much as Charlie. I like Peck and Paw, but I think you could see why that film out of most of the Peck and Paws, you know. Although it's, it, I think it is more finely realized than Pat Garrett. Like, it works more as a story than some of Peck and Paw's other films around hmm. that time. I was uh, particularly struck because even though I'm trying to remember, I know I've seen one of these movies with uh, Pam Greer because I love Pam Greer. I just love Pam Greer. So Pam Greer is an African-American actress that people don't know who's gorgeous and had a kind of career, if we want to put that in quotes, in what was known as black exploitation films. And I appreciated what you wrote. I wanted you to read a bit, if you would. Let's take page 78 where you talk about the black exploitation films Coffee and Foxy Brown, in which Pam Greer was the star. 
At the time, there were two schools of thought on black exploitation. There were the aisle seat revolutionaries who turned up amid the film critics of the day, ready to hail the new movies as authentic images of blacks standing up to the corruption and degradation of white-dominated society, specifically and usually the Italian gangsters in league with the cops and politicians. And there was the more prevalent disapproval of high-minded critics, almost all of them white, which held that black exploitation movies were crass and violent outings financed by white movie executives getting rich by exploiting the fears of the black audience. It's important to note, though, that the motivation for making black exploitation pictures was the same as the motivation for making almost anything else money. And when MGM was saved from bankruptcy by the surprise success of Shaft, there was even more incentive to keep making them. So I grew up in Memphis, and uh, Shaft, the soundtrack, was created by Isaac Hayes, who was from Memphis. So you know, there's a lot of attention to that movie. Let me let people hear Pam Greer in action from Coffee. And let me see you crawl over here, you black trash. You want me to crawl? What are you doing? Put that down. You want to spit on me and make me crawl? Okay, so I have to say that having seen some of those in film festivals or wherever, it was very much cheered by the audience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was a kind of empowerment, even though everybody, and I don't think anybody that I saw it with, was at all confused about what kind of film it was. But to see her, this beautiful woman, sort of being in charge, even in this shabby scenario, it was really quite amazing. So I had to just bring that up because I thought this was very interesting. You talk about issues of uh, race and class a lot as they were articulated during this time. And I was particularly interested in the raid, the one about the Apache Indians. Ozana's raid, yes. Let's hear a clip from this and then I want you to comment on it. Cut her loose. She's not dead. Why do you suppose they spared Mrs. Reardon? Maybe they thought she was dead. Ozana, leave woman for you to find. Dad, if they come back, promise me you won't let them take me. Promise me. Alzana's Raid's the roughest movie in the book. It's about an Apache who's on a government agency, not a reservation, but something even worse. And he breaks out and leads a war party on uh, murder and rape. And a cavalry unit is sent after him. And the unit is headed up by a young, inexperienced officer played by Bruce Davison. And he's accompanied by this experienced Indian tracker played by Burt Lancaster. And what they find is this trail of slaughter. And it puts the audience, I think, in an intolerable position because the movie doesn't stint on how Native Americans were treated by the government. Their land taken killed, put into these pens, essentially. But at the same time, it doesn't make them into noble savages who pose no danger to the settlers. And there is something almost intolerable for the rational mind to be able to ask to entertain the idea of people as victims and victimizers at the same time. And it's a rough, rough film, but it's a brilliant one. And 
a critic, a very close friend of mine who was looking at this as I was writing it. I would not let her read this chapter because she hadn't seen it. I said, I don't want you to know what's coming. I want you to see this. And so she finally saw this a few months ago. And she came out of the theater and I got a text that said, if there's a more pitiless Western, I don't want to see it. Mm. But uh, what I took from your description of it was what we started with in this conversation, which is the audience was expected to be an adult and that it wasn't going to be easy for you. You're going to have to hold two things at the same time. Yes and yes is happening at the same time, and how you feel about it is how you feel about it, but here it is on the screen. Well, this is the thing that now we no longer expect audiences to be an adult. There was a review in USA Today of Dunkirk saying that there may be some people in the audience who are upset because there are no women or people of color in this movie, (laughs) and it's like, yes, there may be, but why, you know, even worry about (laughs) someone who has so little sense of history? Well, I was interested in and in, to get both of your takes on this because you're pretty strong, Charles Taylor, author of Opening Wednesday at a Theater or Drive-In Near You, the shadow cinema of the American 70s, about movies today. We, you said a little bit about it, but you can't stand the blockbusters. You think everybody's being spoon-fed, and it's just undermining what you think the movies ought to be about in terms of bringing us together to think about things. Just want to read this part of your book that I thought was very interesting toward the end. You say, when digital culture has erased the boundaries determining not just when we see movies during their initial release or months later, but where we see movies in a theater, on a flat screen TV, on a laptop, on a phone, and how we see movies all at once or in pieces, an hour between dinner and bedtime or a few minutes on the train home. The medium itself is in danger of no longer being a communal experience and thus losing the aesthetic and social impact that shared experience always held out as a potential. Thomas, respond to that first, and then I'll let Charles answer his own (laughs) quote. Well, you don't want to sound like a cranky old old man when you sort of uh, condemn the films. And there are great movies out there. I think what Charles is saying about cinema, you know, it has to play in Shanghai and Seoul and in the U.S., so you don't get that kind of ambiguity. You don't get the dialogue or just the sort of, you know, lines that you used to get in the 1970s. If you look at a film like The Godfather or Chinatown, which have given so much to the language. We quote those lines uh, because they're just so applicable in many of the situations uh, of life. We tend not to get that from movies like Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, and uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. So you agree with him? I don't want to sound quite as cranky as Charles, but yeah, basically I agree with him. But I think the impulse now that the stuff we used to see in the 1970s has probably moved into serial narrative television. So uh, I think we get many of those qualities in Breaking Bad or Mad Men or The Handmaid's Tale that in a previous generation would go to the motion pictures for. So what's happened to us then, Charles? Are you just going to be viewed as cranky and we're never going to... I mean, because we're not going to go back to there are the five, exact no, scenarios. And there are five or six things I'd send you to see in the theater right now. Some okay. of them at the multiplex. I think Dunkirk's an amazing piece of filmmaking. I don't think you're wasting your time if you go to see Baby Driver, which is a really fun night at the movies. But by and large, the thing is that American mainstream movie making has become catering to the adolescent mindset. And that wasn't because they're superhero movies. It wasn't true of Tim Burton's Batman movies or when Richard Lester did Superman 2. It wasn't true of fantasy movies like E.T. or Close Encounters. But it's not just that we've hit an adolescent mindset, but the movies are less thought of as stories now than as pieces of product. And they're marketed 
to be familiar to audiences from what they've seen before and just to get them out there and get money. And it's kind of amazing. I, I will disagree with you about uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, which I think is a terrific movie and a smart one. And, and, and 30 minutes too long? And, <laughs> no, actually. Oh. I, 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 you know, and I would have said that. about, But uh, there's a political sense to it and an emotional sense and a moral sense. Give me one movie, Charles Taylor, of this from the shadow cinema that people should start with if they're interested in beginning to look at this genre. Well, they can find Hard Times, which is a, a movie about boxers set in the Depression with James Coburn and Charles Bronson. It's uh, it's entertaining. It's not particularly brutal. And I can't imagine anybody not having a good time watching that. Well, we're going to end there. Thank I thank you. you so much. I thank both of you for joining me today. A pleasure. Thank you. Charles Taylor is a film critic and essayist whose latest book is opening Wednesday at a theater or a drive-in near you, The Shadow Cinema of the American 70s. The book is available in stores and online now. And Thomas Doherty is professor of American studies at Brandeis University and a cultural historian with a special interest in Hollywood cinema. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.